Welcome everyone. Special word of welcome to any guests and visitors with us, especially in connection with Hazel's baptism. And uh, also to those joining us via the live feed, welcome to you as well. Just a couple announcements from council. The first is that uh, there will be a council meeting this week Wednesday at 7.30. And then Katistri would also like to, you to know that we're celebrating Lord's Supper next week at 4 o'clock with a communal meal afterward. And this afternoon we welcome Pastor Tim to lead us in worship. Good afternoon, everyone. What a great joy uh, to be with you here again uh, as we come to worship our God together and as we come to hear the gospel and also to see uh, the gospel signified and sealed in baptism as well. What a great privilege today. Uh, please rise if you're able to for the call to worship. Our text for this service is all about praising and adoring our great God. And so with that in mind, our call to worship is taken from Psalm 95, uh, verses 1 to 3. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. As we gather together to worship this great God and this great King above all gods, we come humbly confessing our complete dependence on him. Congregation, where does our help come from? Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And God greets us with his blessing from Scripture. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for the sermon for this service is Psalm 63. Let's join in singing the first two stanzas of that psalm as we have it put to music for us. In Psalm 63, stanzas 1 and 2.
At the beginning of our worship, we read the law of God. We do this to remind us of our, our sinful nature, the sinful nature that we'll hear later in the form for baptism and later in our confession in the second service in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, this sinful nature that we're conceived and born into. And so let's read God's law and we'll reflect on the sinful nature of our hearts and how far short we fall of this law. But also we'll remember the holy nature of our God, the one who sent a Savior to keep this law and to wash us clean from our impurity. Let's read the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity on the, of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or daughters, your male servant or female servant, your livestock or the sojourner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So the law of God reminds us right at the beginning of our worship uh, of our sinful nature and our desperate uh, need to be cleansed. And so now we can turn together to the form for the baptism of infants and we can see there uh, an explanation uh, of the gospel that God sent his son Jesus Christ that we might be washed and scrubbed clean uh, by his blood. And he made promises not just to us who believe but also to our children. And that's why we baptize infants. Let's turn to the explanation for the baptism of infants on page 597 of our book of praise. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine of holy baptism is summarized as follows. First, we and our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath. We cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. This is what the immersion in or sprinkling with water teaches us. It signifies the impurity of our souls so that we may detest ourselves, humble ourselves before God, and seek our cleansing and salvation outside of ourselves. Second, baptism signifies and seals to us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. We are therefore baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we're baptized into the name of the Father, God the Father testifies and seals to us that he establishes an eternal covenant of grace with us. He adopts us for his children and heirs and promises to provide us with all good and avert all evil or turn it to our benefit. When we're baptized into the name of the Son, God the Son promises us that he washes us in his blood from all our sins 
and unites us with him in his death and resurrection. Thus we are freed from our sins and accounted righteous before God. When we're baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit assures us by this sacrament that he will dwell in us and make us living members of Christ, imparting to us what we have in Christ, namely the cleansing from our sins and the daily renewal of our lives, till we shall finally be presented without blemish among the assembly of God's elect and life eternal. Third, since every covenant contains two parts, a promise and an obligation, we are through baptism called and obliged by the Lord to a new obedience. We are to cleave to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to trust him and to love him with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and with all our strength. We must not love the world, but put off our old nature and lead a God-fearing life. And if we sometimes through weakness fall into sins, we must not despair of God's mercy, nor continue in sin. For baptism is a seal and trustworthy testimony that we have an eternal covenant with God. Although our children do not understand all this, we may not therefore exclude them from baptism. Just as they share without their knowledge in the condemnation of Adam, so are they without their knowledge received into grace in Christ. For the Lord spoke to Abraham, the father of all believers, and thus speaks to us and our children, saying, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Peter also testifies to this when he says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Therefore, in the old dispensation, God commanded that infants be circumcised. This circumcision was a seal of the covenant of the righteousness of faith. Christ also took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. In the new dispensation, baptism has replaced circumcision. Therefore, infants must be baptized as heirs of the kingdom of God and of his covenant. And as they grow up, their parents have the duty to instruct them in these things. In order that we may now administer this holy sacrament of God to his glory for our comfort and for the upbuilding of the congregation, let's call upon God's holy name in prayer. Let's pray together. Almighty, eternal God, in your righteous judgment, you punish the unbelieving and unrepentant world with the flood. But in your great mercy, you saved and you protected the believer Noah and his family. You drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea, but you led your people Israel through the midst of the sea on dry ground. By this, baptism was signified. We therefore pray, God, that you, in your infinite mercy, will graciously look down upon Hazel, your child, and that you'll incorporate her by your Holy Spirit into your Son, Jesus Christ, so that she might be buried with him by baptism into death and raised with him to walk in newness of life. We pray that Hazel, following Christ day by day, may joyfully bear her cross and cleave to Christ in true faith, firm hope, and ardent love. Grant that she, comforted in you, may leave this life which is no more than a constant death, and at the last day may appear without terror before the judgment seat of Christ your Son. All this we ask through him, our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit, one only God, lives and reigns forever. Amen. So now, to proceed with baptism, I'd like to invite up Josh and Tanya and your, your family uh, as well.
Josh, Tanya, beloved in Christ the Lord, you have heard that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord our God to seal to us and to our children his covenant. We must therefore use this sacrament for that purpose, not out of custom or superstition. That it may be clear then that you desire baptism for the right purpose, you are to answer sincerely the following questions. First, do you confess that our children, though conceived and born in sin, and therefore subject to all sorts of misery, even to condemnation, are sanctified in Christ, and thus as members of his church ought to be baptized. Second, do you confess that the doctrine of the Old and New Testament, summarized in the confessions and taught here in this Christian church, is the true and complete doctrine of salvation? Third, do you promise as father and as mother to instruct Hazel in this doctrine as soon as she is able to understand, and to have her instructed therein to the utmost of your power. Josh, what is your answer? I do. Tanya, what's your answer? I do. Hazel Julianne Togritz, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Please rise if you're able to and join me in singing uh, hymn 56.
Let's come before our Father in a prayer of thanksgiving, and we'll also ask him for a blessing on the opening of his word together. Let's pray. Almighty and merciful God and Father, Lord, we thank and praise you that you have forgiven us and our children all our sins through the blood of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. You received us through your Holy Spirit as members of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ and so adopted us to be your children too. You sealed and confirmed this to us by holy baptism. We pray through your beloved Son that you will always govern Hazel by your Holy Spirit, that she may be nurtured in the Christian faith and in godliness, that she may grow and increase in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant that she thus may acknowledge your fatherly goodness and mercy, which you have shown her and us all. May she live in all righteousness under our only teacher, king, and high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may she valiantly fight against and overcome sin, the devil, and his whole dominion. May she forever praise and magnify you and your Son, Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit, the one only true God. May this be true for Hazel, and may this also be true for Josh and for Tanya, and for Everly and Iris and Jade as well, for the whole Togrits family. We pray that you'll continue to pour out your blessings, lavish them on the Togaritz family, and also each and every one of us as your dear children too. Lord, help us all to see and feel your fatherly goodness and care in our lives, and help us all strive each and every day to overcome the devil in this world, because the one in us is far greater than the one in the world. We pray for your help every day, that we might continue to grow in faith and hope and love. We ask that you'll help us now, especially in this worship service, now, as we open up your word together, help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, the righteousness we can only find in Jesus Christ. And help us to know that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. As we come to your word together, make us hungry and thirsty, and then satisfy our hunger and thirst through your Son, Jesus Christ, the living water and the bread of life. It's in his name alone that we pray. Amen. So in our text for today, we'll read about King David, the great king of Israel in the Old Testament, about him hungering and thirsting for God. And so with that theme in mind, let's turn together to our reading, which is John 4, uh, verses 7 to 15. John chapter 4, we'll begin at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So far, our reading of John 4. Now let's sing together the last two stanzas of our text, Psalm 63, stanzas 3 and 4. now together to our text, which is Psalm 63. Just as a, a little bit of uh, introduction, recently I was talking with some ministers and we were talking about prayer. And like all people, uh, we were talking about how uh, we could stand to pray more and we could learn more about prayer. And we talked about how there were some particular aspects of prayer that we struggle with, that we feel like we could grow in. And so the next three times I'm preaching in our 2 p.m. service, then I'm going to preach on uh, three of the aspects of prayer that we felt we uh, neglected the most in our prayer lives, and uh, maybe it will resonate with you as well. Uh, so today we'll consider adoration. Sometimes we find it's easy not to adore God in our prayers. And in two weeks' time, we'll look at lament. Uh, that's bringing our complaints before God. And then two weeks after that, we'll look at thanksgiving. It's easy to ask God for lots of stuff and then not give thanks for the things we have received. And so under the theme of adoration, let's read together uh, the psalm that we just sang, Psalm 63. 
a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you on the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So far, our reading from God's word for now. Brothers and sisters, do you have any unique family traditions? One of the really fun things about starting your own family is you get to start off or keep some of your old family traditions. And some families, if you ask about it, you'll find out they have really fun traditions or really silly traditions. Uh, I read online this week that one family gets together to celebrate each and every one of their birthdays. And each year, and they don't remember why or how it started, but every year they also get together on April 7th. They gather together to celebrate Jackie Chan's birthday. They'll get together on April 7th, they'll order some Chinese food, they'll eat some cake, and they'll watch Jackie Chan movies all night. That's their family tradition, who knows why. Some family traditions are silly and meaningless and just fun. A time of bonding, like that one. Other family traditions, though, they can be deeply meaningful, can't they? Uh, Jen Wilkin, uh, a well-known Christian author, she explains that they have a family tradition around birthdays as well. Uh, they get together, they let the birthday boy or the birthday girl pick the dinner. After dinner, they have a cake uh, of the birthday boy or girl's choosing. And then they sing their own silly family version of happy birthday uh, at the top of their lungs. And then they do something more deliberate, more important. As they start to hand out the pieces of cake, one by one, then everyone goes around the table telling the birthday boy or the birthday girl exactly, specifically, what it is they love about them. They'll praise that person. They'll thank God for that person, telling them specifically what they love about them and trying to elaborate as much as possible. And as I've mentioned before in a sermon on Psalm 145, uh, as human beings, we're actually built for praise. When you see a great, beautiful picture, or when you see an awesome sunset, or you listen to uh, an amazing, beautiful song, or maybe you meet a wonderful person, what's often the first thing you want to do? You want to share it. You want to go and tell someone about it. And in fact, our joy isn't full until we've got a chance to reflect on this beautiful thing we've just heard or seen. And we've got to share it with someone else. Maybe you, you have it too. I know the first thing that I want to do when I see a beautiful picture or when I watch a funny video online or something, I always bother Kristen. I, I call her over. She needs to see it too. We need to share it. 
Because that's how our joy will grow. That's how we can enjoy it more. We're built to praise. And so Jen Wilkins' family, drawing on that, they, they praise one another. They tell their loved ones what they love about them. And they find that telling them what you love about them, it's good for their own soul, it's good for the other person's soul, and it's just good for their relationship. It helps you grow more meaningful connections with one another. That's because we're built for praise and adoration. And yet, nevertheless, Jen Wilkin, this Christian author, she notes that adoration, this natural impulse of human beings, uh, an offering of worshipful praise, it's one of the most natural and important aspects of prayer. And yet, it's the aspect of prayer, she says, that she thinks we are most quick, we are quickest to neglect or rush by or skip over altogether. And so in doing so, when we skip over adoring our God, then we rob our God of praise, of course, but really, in a sense, when we do this, we're robbing ourselves. And we're robbing one another uh, of satisfaction and joy and intimacy with our God. We're not growing as much as we could, as we were created to do. And so today, we'll focus on adoration. And adoration is found all over the book of Psalms. But today, we'll focus on perhaps the greatest prayer of adoration of them all, Psalm 63. And we'll look at David's adoration in that psalm, and we'll look at it in two parts. First, we'll see in the first four verses of this psalm, David's longing for God. Then secondly, we'll see in the remaining verses, David's satisfaction in God. So first of all, David's longing for God. And if someone asked you for a second, what do you long for? What do you really desire in life? What might you say? I think a lot of us might say is what I really want is something like more time. Time is hard to come by, right? 24 hours in a day often doesn't feel like enough. I would really love a little bit more time. Or maybe we would say that we really long for better rest. We long for a vacation. We long for a break. Maybe we would say we long, we desire to be smarter or more healthy, self-improvement. Maybe we would say we desire a bit more money. And looking it up online, uh, one therapist says that she thinks maybe the most important part of her job is helping people identify the things that they desire so she can help them find the things behind what they desire, what they really desire. She says that we ultimately don't desire just more time or more money or a vacation. She says behind all of those things always must lie a deeper desire. For example, if you have a, a desire for money or, or for more time, maybe she says what you actually desire is more freedom, more security. Maybe if you desire self-improvement in different ways, maybe what you really desire is to be understood. Maybe you desire to be valued or loved. And one Christian theologian, he, he actually argues beyond this. He says it goes much deeper. He explains that before he became a Christian, he, he did look to these kind of things for satisfaction. He, he could find some satisfaction in, in things like reading or vacationing or sleep or, or money. And likewise, he could find maybe a little bit more satisfaction in greater freedom or, or security or in being loved. But this man, when he came to Christ, he came ultimately to realize that all of these things too, they were signposts pointing to a deeper desire. A deeping longing, a longing he believes and we believe that all humanity shares. A longing for something far greater. We desire for freedom to serve our God and live with him. We desire not just to be loved and understood 
in general, but loved and understood by our Creator, and to dwell with Him. So this Christian author says to think of it this way. He says, imagine for a second that you are terribly, hopelessly lost in the woods. And so you're turned around, you're, you're going around corners, you're, you're looking around trees, and then finally you stumble upon a signpost. How do you feel? Overjoyed. What a great thing to find. If there are others nearby, you begin crying out, saying, look, look, come over here, calling everyone to come and see the signpost and see for themselves and rejoice with you. And then after you've had this great joy, then what do you do? Well, the author says you, you don't stay there. That would be a ridiculous thing to do. You don't keep on trying to return again and again to the signpost for satisfaction. If you do, eventually, you're going to find the satisfaction and joy of the signpost itself. It dries up. The signpost by itself, it's not that exciting. The exciting thing, the true satisfaction behind the signpost is what it points to. What it has you go to, to strive towards, uh, for instead. And so this Christian author, he explains, this is the great thing that Christians have. In this life, we come across many signposts, he says. Many joys, many desires, maybe uh, many delights. We have family and friends and experiences. We, We experience a great deal of love. And these things are amazing. But, he says, we need to remember always, they're signposts. We can't go to them time and time again for ultimate satisfaction. Eventually, the satisfaction there will dry up. We need to realize what these things point to, where real satisfaction lies. And they point us not just to gifts, wonderful gifts as they are, but they point us to the giver of every single one of these gifts. They point us back to our Creator, our great God. The gifts themselves, the signposts, they can never really satisfy. The Christian author says, they won't continue to satisfy, they'll lose their luster, even if the signposts are made of pure silver and their lettering is made of pure gold. As we read in James 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift, and we have a lot of them, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That is where our desire should firmly be planted. And we see so clearly in our psalm, that is where King David, the great leader of Israel, that is where his desire, his longing is firmly planted. And that's why he can always praise and adore his God in worship. Now think about it for a minute. Maybe you don't have a problem with adoring like me, but I often skip over this part of prayer. And when I do feel the desire to adore or praise, when do you think that typically is? When do you typically feel the desire to adore or praise our God? It's often when something really good happens, right? Then we want to turn to our God and praise Him. It depends a lot on the signposts, a lot on the circumstances coming around us. And sometimes we'll look at a signpost, we're really thankful for the signpost. And we'll praise God a little bit for that. But Corey Ten Boom, uh, I shared a small part of her story a few weeks ago. She mentions how this concerns her. She says that one time she went to a, a wonderful church event, a, a church picnic, and she heard there people praising God. They were talking about how good God was, and she was happy to hear that. 
But she found they were saying how good their God was because they had prayed for good weather for the church picnic, and they had gotten it. And so if you remember the story of Corey Ten Boom at all, you can remember why she was a little bit concerned. She said, you need to look past that. Sure, you can praise God for the good weather. Absolutely do. But if that's where you think that's the clearest sign for you that God is good, then what about when it rains? What about when the good weather doesn't come? What about Corey Ten Boom talked about her own story? What about when she and her sister Betsy, when they were in a concentration camp, when all the signposts seemed to be gone? What about then? Could they still praise and adore? Could they still see glimmers of God? Could they still believe that God was good and worthy of praise? And we find something like that in this psalm as well. Notice the title of this psalm. It's very important. This psalm, uh, so full of praise and adoration for God, perhaps the, the highlight of the Psalter in that regard. It was written by David when? It was well he was in the wilderness of Judah. As far as we know, there are only two times in King David's life when he was in the wilderness of Judah. The first time when he was fleeing his father-in-law, the terrible King Saul. He was hunting him down, trying to kill him because he was jealous of David's success and trying to prevent David from becoming the next king. So David went from a young shepherd boy to a fugitive on the run, living in the wilderness of Judah. You have to picture basically a rocky desert full of caverns and cliffs and caves. There David left, uh, lived, hiding out. But this psalm was most likely written the second time that King David was in the wilderness. Many years later, Saul had died. God had protected David, and God had done what he promised. He made David a great and powerful king and blessed the Israelites through him. He built himself a great palace, he had become incredibly powerful and incredibly rich. He had everything his heart could desire. He even had his God right nearby. Uh, the tabernacle was near his home in Jerusalem. And he could go and see the sacrifices and have access to his God. But one day for David, everything changed. His son Absalom turned against him. He started inciting people to hate him and start a rebellion against him. And what happened to King David? He had to leave his palace. He had to leave his riches. He had to leave his uh, people. He had to leave the tabernacle of his God. He had to go back again into the wilderness. The wilderness of Judah. David was forced to leave everything behind. Even the tabernacle of his God. All these beautiful signposts pointing to God's goodness and faithfulness. He had to leave them behind him for who knows how long. And David in that wilderness again with nothing. That is most likely when David pens this psalm, outlining what his desire in life is, what he is longing for. And David says at the beginning of our psalm, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Everything is gone from David's life, so it seems. And so he goes to his God in prayer, and he says, Lord, I am so thirsty. We need to realize that's very likely literally true. He was in the wilderness. It was a desert. Very little water around. David goes to God and saying, God, I am so thirsty. My soul is thirsting for you. My flesh is fainting, David says, for you. Everything good in his life seems to be gone. 
But David says his greatest desire all of the time, it hasn't been in those things, in those signposts pointing to God's goodness and faithfulness over the years. He knew those were just signposts. And here, even in the wilderness, he turns and praises God because his longing is for his God. There, his thirst can be quenched. Here in the wilderness, with nothing, what he wants to do is sing adoration to God. Look at verse 2 of our text. There David says, so. Uh, probably best understood as uh, just as. So just as I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, as he's looked on him, as he's beheld him, seeing and sensing and delighting in his God. He says he's seen there and sensed God's power and glory. In other words, David is longing to and he's trying to worship God in the wilderness just as he did before. When he had all the signposts, he had the greatest signposts. He had the tabernacle revealing his God's power and glory. He tells us in the sanctuary he beheld his God. He, he saw and experienced God's power and glory. And he says there and still in the wilderness that God's steadfast love is better than life. David thought of every good thing that his life had to offer right now, but everything he had before as well. And as one preacher says, David took every good and perfect thing that he ever had and put it on one side of a scale. And then he took God's steadfast, unfailing love for a sinful man like him and put it on the other side of the scale and found that God's steadfast love outweighed everything else by far. Your steadfast love, David says, even in the wilderness, better than life. Even in the desert, he calls to God. And notice in his prayer, he's not frantic. He's not making all kinds of appeals and requests like we might expect him to do at this time, fleeing from his son. Instead, he comes to God in confidence and in praise. Because in his life, the signposts have pointed him not just to God's gifts, but rather to God himself to God's glory and power and steadfast love, he lists. And so standing in the wilderness, nothing uh, with nothing he can say. In verse 4, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. What David wants to do and what he has to do, what he can't help to do even in this time of trial, is worship and adore his God. Because he had a picture, he had a, he had a glimpse of his God's power and glory and steadfast love. And what I long for each of you to know today is as great as of a picture that David had of God's glory and power and steadfast love in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle. You yourself and me, we have a far greater picture of God's power and glory and steadfast love that is far better than everything else this life has to offer. David had what the Bible describes as a shadow. He had the tabernacle, the sanctuary, a little picture of God's nature and his goodness. Brothers and sisters, we have our Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of God came down, and the New Testament tells us, he himself tabernacled among us. And there we look to Jesus Christ and we behold in worship God's power. Enough to still a storm. 
We see God's glory. We see God's steadfast, enduring, undying love. We see these things far more clearly in a way that King David only could have dreamed of. We see them on the cross of Christ. We see God's holiness. We see his power. We see his enduring, undying love for sinful people like you and me. And so when the signposts fade away, when they're destroyed, we can say with King David, God, I want to praise you. God, your steadfast love is better than life itself. That is what I long for. That's what I thirst for. Not your stuff, God. I long for you, even in the wilderness. That's what David wants to do. That's all he can do, is praise his God, even in the wilderness. And so we've seen David's longing is for God. The God who can only truly satisfy, and who in Jesus Christ, as we read in John 4, sent down living water. Living water that can quench our thirst truly, finally. So we never need to go anywhere else. The one who can truly satisfy those who are hungry and thirsty. And next, David goes on to talk about not just his longing, but his satisfaction that he finds when he goes to God. Rather than going to signposts, rather than going anywhere else. You see that beginning in verse 5, and that's our second and our final point. David's satisfaction in God. So remember, David is in a rocky and a barren land. And yet he goes to his God in prayer and praise and adoration. And there, when he gets back to his God, what does David say even in the wilderness? We read in verse 5. He says his soul is satisfied as with fat and rich food. And so David isn't just talking about the bare necessities of life here, is he? He is not talking about plain bread. He's not talking about vegetables or some meat and potatoes. What does he find in God in his time of need? David goes to God and he's satisfied as with fat and rich food. So try and picture for a minute, think back to the best, the most delicious, the most satisfying meal that you've ever had. A meal where you had seconds and then maybe, maybe even you snuck in thirds. Not because you were still hungry, not because you needed it, but because you wanted it. It was so rich. It was so delicious, so satisfying. It was so amazing. You had to scrape every bite off the plate. David says in the wilderness, he's going back to God and he is feasting on him. He's feasting on his love. He's feasting on his power and glory. And again, as a result, David bursts out in adoration. He says, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. The wonder of God is so great, he has to share it. He has to praise with his mouth, with his lips. He has to tell others. It's like saying, this food is so great, you need to take a bite. Calling others, you got to try this. It's amazing. And that's actually one of my favorite illustrations for preaching. Uh, One minister that I worked with a little bit while I was in seminary, he gave me a warning. He said often seminary students, often new ministers, they can make a mistake. He said that the gospel of Jesus Christ is like this. It's like a great banquet. It's like the best, most satisfying food you've ever eaten in your life. He said you could picture it like the best burger that you've ever had. And he said the risk for new guys like me in preaching is that sometimes we can say, uh, come up and we can say, this burger is so good, take a look. Now, what we can default to doing is just listing off ingredients. Like, it's got tomatoes. Those are good. It's got bacon, cheese. Sounds pretty good, right? There's buns. Uh, I think they're gluten-free. They're awesome. 
start listing off things like that. But he warned me. He said, never, ever do that. We're not just called to know facts about God. We're invited to come and know God. To taste and see that he is good. To delight in him and be satisfied. He said, show everyone the burger. Make them hear about how good the burger is. And then invite them to come and taste the burger. To take bites of the the burger. To feast on the burger so they're satisfied. And make them want to keep on coming back. Likewise with Jesus Christ. He doesn't just list facts about who he is or what he's like. But when he says he is the living water, when he says he's the bread of life, he immediately turns around and he invites and calls each and every one of us. I am the living water. You come and you drink and you be satisfied. This is what David does. And we read that David does it all day and all night. You can imagine David in this situation, his son out to get him. His trusted allies have turned against him. He's hiding in the wilderness. You can imagine David at night, likely tossing and turning, unable to sleep. Have you ever had that at night? Tossing and turning, unable to sleep, too many things on your mind. I know that I've certainly had that more often than I'd like, completely unable to sleep. Times like that when I'm up at night, usually, now what am I thinking about? Usually when you're up at night, what are, what's running through your mind? What are you thinking about? Personally, usually I'm quite anxious about something. And so sometimes as I'm anxious, as uh, whatever I'm worried about is running through my mind, sometimes I'll turn to God and I'll pray. Uh, I'll bring these things before God and I'll try and just for a little while leave these things at God's feet so that I can sleep. And I think that's a good thing to do. Praise God when we do that. But I was really challenged by this psalm this week because look at what David does, at least in this instance. When I go to God at night and I can't sleep, when I'm anxious, my prayers, I think, every time, they're always full of requests. I'm always asking, God, please do this. God, please help me with this. God, please watch over this. Help me tomorrow with this. And we'd understand if David did that, if his prayer was full of requests. But what are his prayers at night full of in this psalm? They're full of adoration and praise. David says, he will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and his hearts and lips will sing with praise for God. When I remember you on my bed. To remember means to intentionally and specifically call to mind who God is, what he's like, what he's done in the past, what he's done for people like you and me. And David says when he's struggling to sleep, well then he makes use, good use of the extra time. Not just worrying. He says meditating. Meditating on the Lord in the watches of the night. And that's where his song, his prayer, starts. And that's also, incredibly, that's where his psalm, his prayer, ends as well. Notice this. I I was actually shocked when I realized this, studying this psalm this week. David never gets to the request part of his prayer. Look over the prayer for yourself. There's not one request in the whole thing. All it is, in this time of trouble, is praising his God that he has so much delight in, so much joy and confidence in. He doesn't ask for one single thing. All David does when he's scared in his time of trouble is he climbs up close to his God, and they are climbing up close to him. He's satisfied. You know how sometimes a, a little kid, uh, they'll wake up and set, upset in the night, and they're, you, you don't even know. You don't know what's wrong. 
Maybe they're scared. Maybe they're not feeling well. Maybe they're anxious or upset. But then this little kid who's, who's just so worried, so afraid, they just crawl up into bed with mom and dad, and then they're fine. Maybe there they're even more than fine. Maybe they're overjoyed. They're delighted. Happy to just to be near mom and dad. Who even knows what the problem was? That's the picture of what we have here with David. In his time of deep, unsettled need, he goes to God. And he starts by remembering and meditating on who God, his father, is. And there he finds a reset for his soul. He's refreshed. He's calmed. His mind is put at ease. He, he goes to God himself, the creator of the earth. His God, his heavenly father. The one who loved him so much that he didn't fully know yet. But he was going to give his own son for him. Crawl, crawling into God's arms, he's calm. Coming near to his God, he's satisfied. I actually love how David puts it in this psalm. He says, under the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. I trust many of you know in the book of Matthew, Jesus takes this illustration on himself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, says he's willing to gather everyone close, willing to gather us to safety, like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And so in his time of trouble, that's exactly where David runs. There, under the wings of his God, he's soothed. There, he's safe. There, he, we know and he knows nothing is going to get to us because they'll have to go through our God first. We know nothing will get to us. They'll have to go through Jesus Christ to harm us. And so we can be calm. There, David is close to his God, secure in his loving arms, close to his chest. And so his soul clings to him, David said. And so again, I think you get a picture of a kid, a little child clinging to their mom or dad in a time of joy or a time that they need comfort, in a time of sorrow. And what does David say? He says, just like a child with their mom or dad, my soul clings to you, God. And is he safe because he's clinging to God? No. What else does he go on to say? He says, your right hand is around me. If God's right hand is around us, his strong hand keeping us safe, then we can be calmed. We can be satisfied. We can be soothed once again. Not clinging to stuff or to circumstances or to signposts. Whatever the circumstances, clinging with our souls to Jesus Christ. And when David does cling to his God, even in the middle of trouble, his heart sings with praise. He says, I will sing with joy. In this time of hardship, David's former friends and his dear son are coming for his throne, coming for his life. But this is his prayer, not one single request. Just thinking about who his God is, what he has done, what he will do. And just articulating makes his heart sing with confidence. And again, if you look at the last few verses of the psalm, you'll see he doesn't even ask God to save him from his enemies, not specifically. Instead, simply David praises God, saying, once he's crawled up to him, once he's reflected on who his God is, what he's like, that his right arm is around him, David simply says, my enemies are doomed. My enemies will lose. Because King David knows that his enemies are really ultimately God's enemies. They're the ones coming after God's king. The one who had received many covenant promises. The one that God had said salvation was going to come through. If they were raising themselves against God and his anointed one, his king, David was perfectly safe. 
David says, me, your king, and all who swear by you, that is, all who put their trust in God, they will rejoice and exalt. Again, they will praise. And we will praise God one day with David in the new Jerusalem. And David, he doesn't wait till then to begin praying. But already now, David begins adoring God and praising him for his salvation. And we who have seen it more fully through Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the fulfillment of David's line, we should join in praising already now as well. Jesus tells us in John, he says, Come to me and drink, and you will be satisfied. That's what we read earlier. He says, Up in you will well a flow of water leading to eternal life. But later in John as well, Jesus also says, There's water welling up inside of you. It won't just stay trapped inside. Jesus says, Come to me and drink, and out of you will flow rivers of living water. And that's what we see in David as well. Reflecting on God and trusting in God and praising God, David can't help but pour out with praise and invite others to join him in praising God as well. Again, this is by nature what we do when we delight in our God. We express it to others. We invite others to join in. This is exactly what we were created to do. And just imagine for a second. Imagine you were with King David in the wilderness. You were frightened. You weren't sure how things were going to go. You, you saw all that King David lost. And then you turn over and King David walks into the room or walks into the cave or whatever. And you see, he's not scared. He's overflowing with praise for his God even then. How would you feel? I think we would overflow with praise too. Overflow with confidence in this God, the God of our salvation. Imagine what a comfort this would be for those around him. And that's what we long for as well. That we can run to Jesus Christ and be satisfied. That we can drink deeply. And that by God's grace, he might transform us. So out of us flow rivers of living water as well. So others can be comforted in their time of need. So they can too well up with praise for our God. That they might not get distracted with their life looking at the signposts and hoping in the signposts they can find happiness, satisfaction, contentment. No, we want to tell them to look past the signposts. Look past the gifts. Look to the gift giver. Look to Jesus Christ. There you can truly find rest and satisfaction for our souls. We long to be those kinds of people, people like David, pointing others to our God. Beggars telling other beggars where they can find bread. And wouldn't it look good, brothers and sisters, if we made that our family tradition? Spending time, not just at birthdays, doing what we were created to do. Spending time in praise and adoration of each other. We should tell each other what we love. But spending even more time in praise and adoration, telling one another what we love and adore about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing together in response, hymn 78, stanzas 1, 2, and 3.
Let's come before our God in a prayer of adoration. Let's pray. Almighty Father, and wonderful King of all creation, Lord, what a God we have in you. Lord, you are the awesome, the perfect creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, the entire galaxy and every galaxy beyond it. And you are not just a powerful God, not just a huge God, but you are our God. You are our Father. Lord, we join in with King David and with all of your people that you have saved through your Son, Jesus Christ. We join in praising you and adoring you. Lord, earnestly we seek not just gifts from you. Earnestly we seek you yourself. We were created to live with you. We were created to glorify you, to bask in your love and in the freedom of worshiping you and serving you and living in your presence. Lord, we are so thankful that we can come to Jesus Christ, the living water, to drink deeply because our, thirst, our souls thirst not for things. Our souls thirst for you. Lord, we look to Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and there we behold your power. There we behold your glory and your steadfast love that is so much better than life itself. We praise you that you're a God we can draw near to, that your steadfast love is reliable, that we can count on it today and every day of our lives, no matter where we find ourselves. We praise you that your love is higher and wider and deeper than we will ever comprehend starting now and stretching into eternity. We praise you that this love you pour out on us, that it wasn't cheap love, it wasn't cheap grace. We know that this love was extremely costly. Christ didn't just love us when it was easy. He loved us when it hurt, when it involved laying down his uh, status in heaven, when it involved laying down his life on this earth. Lord, having a great and glorious God like you that we can come to in our times of need, that we can hide under your wings. Lord, this calms our anxieties and it silences our fears. Our enemies in this world, they're too great and powerful for us. But if we're wrapped up and we are by your powerful right hand, Lord, we know that we are safe. Lord, we come to you and we worship you and we're satisfied by you as with fat and rich food. It's our privilege and our joy to remember you and to meditate on you, even when we can't sleep at night. To remember that you are our help in ages past and our hope for years to come. And we sing for joy in the shadow of your wings, knowing that Christ covered us and laid down his life so that nothing could separate us from your love. Our greatest enemies are your enemies, and their plans will come to ruin. And as for us, we will rejoice and exult with you, our King, Jesus Christ, forever and ever. It's in his name alone that we pray. Amen. At this point in our worship service, uh, same as every week, we have the opportunity to give our gifts to the Lord who's given so generously and so lavishly to us. And uh, donations are never for the operating budget of the church at all, but always uh, to help those who are in need. So the collection today is for Safe Families and uh, more information about uh, Safe Families and how we can donate our money and also our time to help uh, those in our community in need uh, will be given by our deacons uh, in the liturgy sheet if you get that emailed out or also we'll get more information in our mailbox in the years to come or sorry, in the weeks to come.
Uh, after the collection, we'll sing together the remaining two stanzas of hymn 78. and sisters, receive the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.
you guys can remain standing. It's not going to be long. Um, first of all, Josh and Tanya, congratulations both on the safe arrival and baptism of Hazel. Um, on behalf of Consistory, we'd like to present you with a book titled Children in the Church. Um, it's a series of essays written in regards to the importance of children in the congregation. Um, and it's our prayer that you will feel equipped by the Spirit to raise all four of your daughters um, to the faith and hope of Christ. <laughs> 